I think that this passage is a bit of a work of art. It paints uh, a picture of deliverance, of restoration, of the fruits of God's righteousness and grace. It's poetic, it's celebratory, it's kind of epically hopeful in terms of the scope of what it imagines. And imagination, I think, is one of the most important components of hope. I mean, there, is, there would be nothing to hope for if we couldn't imagine something better. C.S. Lewis was a theologian who had a lot to say on the topic of theological imagination. And frankly, I only know this because I had to write a couple of papers on him in seminary. <laughs> and I'll admit that I've forgotten most of what I've learned, but one quote of his has stuck with me. He says, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Imagination is not the cause of truth, but its condition. Imagination, holy imagination, theological imagination, prepares us to receive truth. It conditions our minds and hearts in such a way that we can step into and understand God's reality better. A reality that is so different from our own broken one. So what does this have to do with Isaiah 61? I think that this use of imagination, this poetic picture laid out for us in this passage is why Isaiah 61 is frequently used during the season of Advent. Advent, a season of hope, of holy imagination. A time set aside to contemplate Jesus' coming when he came to earth as a baby in the manger and when he will come again as Prince of Peace. For centuries, at least since 1200s officially, probably 400s in unofficially, the church has taken a month or two or so just to sit in the tension of waiting, waiting for something that has been promised, something that has come in part but not yet in full, wondering what that will look like, what it will be like. And that's what this passage imagines for us, gives us a template for the coming of the king. Before we really get into it, let's pray. Blessed are you, sovereign God of all. To you be praise and glory forever. In your grace and compassion, the dawn from on high is breaking upon us, dispelling the lingering shadows of night. As we come to your word today and look for your coming among us, I pray that you would guide my words, open our eyes to behold your presence, and strengthen our imaginations, our hope, and our hands, that we might be able to see you more clearly and to do your will, that the world may rejoice and give you praise. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. This is the last Sunday of Advent the fourth and final Sunday of the month before Christmas. Um, I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of amazing how a month can just fly by so fast. 
And we've been in Isaiah this whole time, exploring the prophecies of Jesus's incarnation and work on earth. This book is full of words of warning and judgment and comfort and hope, speaking to people in prosperity, in the midst of devastation, in the process of rebuilding. Quite a versatile text. But I think that the core purpose of this very long, sprawling prophetic book of Isaiah is to invite God's people into a vision of the glory of the Lord revealed in and in spite of a world of chaos, the glory of the Lord redeeming a world of chaos. Scholars agree that this book, the book of Isaiah, was probably written in three parts, pieces by the original prophet Isaiah, uh, pieces by a second and maybe a third prophet that followed in his footsteps. If we take cues from the events that are mentioned, the writings span almost 150 years. Enough time for warnings about the people's self-absorption and idolatry, the consequence that follows of a full exile, and an eventual return to the promised land. This 61st chapter is thought to come right before or after the people's return from exile in Babylon. And this would have been a loaded context for this prophecy. It is a striking contrast to the situation of its first Israelite hearers, listeners, whether they were in the midst of exile's miser misery, the very end of it, or in the post-exile disappointment. After the devastation they had experienced, this poem would have painted an almost unbelievable picture of restoration. God makes it clear that the exile was warranted. Israel had turned to idolatry, self-glorification by their own power, the oldest of human vices, going back all the way to the garden. Isaiah records God's words like this in verse eight. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery with a burnt offering. I hate wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them the recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with the people. According to Isaiah, the people suffered for a reason. There was a natural consequence to their falling away from God. It was overconfidence and then being conquered by another empire. But God does not delight in their suffering or brush it under the rug. He promises to fix it, to restore what they had and then some. And when this new generation comes home to the promised land that looks nothing like what was promised, after it has been ravaged by the invading empire, God gives them this vision to refresh their memories, their hearts, their collective imagination. Isaiah 61 is a bit long, uh, recognize that. So if you weren't paying attention or if you were indeed checking the World Cup score, uh, here's an overview. There is someone coming 
one anointed by the Lord who will bring good news to the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, one who will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, one who will comfort all who mourn. Ashes covering the heads of the grieving will be blown away to make way for glittering crowns. The black cloths of mourning will be replaced with rich, colorful, decorative garments for celebration and joy. People who, who for too long have felt like driftwood tossed in angry seas will stand as tall and strong as the grandest oak tree. Wrongs will be set right. In the name of the Lord, the people of the covenant will repair cities and restore barren lands and enjoy respect from other nations. A reign of enduring justice and peace will lead every tongue to praise the Lord. Isaiah's promise is that one day, a servant of the Lord will restore all creation to the glory of former paradise. And we'll know when this servant arrives, Isaiah claims, because the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. This is the same spirit who hovered once over creation, pushing aside the darkness and chaos, creating light and beauty in its place. When that spirit is poured out on the Lord's servant, all things will be restored. And it is clear that this salvation, by God's grace, comes from God and God alone. But the generation of Israelites returning from exile in Babylon didn't have a Messiah. They were the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the captive, the mourning, and there was no anointed one in sight. I think that for some, Isaiah 61 would have been a breath of fresh air, new flame in a candle flickering week, a renewed sense that God is coming, God is here, God is still at work. And for others in the Israelite community, this poem probably sounded like some sort of fanciful delusion. Honestly, this would be the group that I think I sometimes would resonate with more. While I do think that this passage is beautiful, it is not always a favorite of mine. I actually have a really hard time connecting with it. Maybe just a hard time really believing it. I mean, this is a picture of a world that feels so far removed from ours. This is a hard time of year already for so many. Even though we get a different story from Hallmark, the holiday season and uh, end of the year is really tough for a lot of people. Some of us here are experiencing death and loss and grief, a new reality with holes in it where a tradition or a loved one should be. On a personal level, there have been a lot of cases coming into the hospital recently that make me so aware of the violence and the injustice in this city. It's hard to take. 
And plus the weather is just so cold and gloomy and gross. And I mean, today is a blessing with the sun, but it's so cold. And seasonal depression is a real, very real thing for lots of, lots of humans when we don't see the sun. So there is a, a small piece of my soul that jumps straight to like, bah, humbug, like a la Ebenezer Scrooge at the slightest inconvenience. And I think that cynicism, that resignation is an emotional stance that a lot of us kind of fall into accidentally, kind of naturally, kind of ironically at this time of year. The recognition that everything is not fine feels a little out of place in this season. It does not feel all that Christmas spirit-y, but it is honest. And although too much sadness or cynicism or despair can break us down, it's important to recognize what's really going on. And actually, it's traditional. If we take a look back in history, it becomes clear that the church's preaching during Advent has often been shaped by some measure of distress or alarm. We've already seen that these Advent scriptures, Isaiah 61, they're born out of turbulent times. And this is why holy imagination is so powerful. We hope for something better because something is wrong. We can imagine something better because it is promised and because it is possible in Christ. This shapes our experience and our witness as Christians in the world. I want to tell you a little bit about a man named Viktor Frankl. Some of you might know the name because he wrote a very famous and profound book, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor was a Jewish Jewish psychiatrist from Austria who survived the Second World War. He spent a total of three years in four concentration camps. And during and after that experience, he developed logotherapy, a therapy that assumes that the search for meaning in life is the most important motivator for Christians. Well, for human beings, also for Christians. In his book, Victor chronicles his experiences as a prisoner and describes his therapeutic method, which involves, in small part, identifying a positive purpose in life and then immersively imagining that outcome. So for example, he had people imagine, say, a moment of freedom with concrete, tangible details. Something like, someday I will be free of this place and I will travel home. I'll walk up to my front door and knock and my mother will be there and she will be wearing her favorite apron and she will smell like her signature perfume and she will give me a hug and my heart will feel at home again. These imaginative exercises were not, I see myself a billionaire rolling in wads of, of cash. These dreams of materialistic gain didn't hold any weight for those prisoners. They had their minds fixed on more important things. And Frankel also suggested that imposing too much control on the imagination, like putting a specific date or other conditions on it, made the hope less powerful, more likely to fail. 
Franco gives the example of a man who decided that he would be freed by his birthday, but died the day after when his hope went unrealized. When I read this piece of Frankel's memoir, and it really just is a small section of the book, it caught my attention. It seemed to me that the exercises of imagination that were most powerful and lasting were based on two things, surrender of control and love. For Frankel and his fellow prisoners, this was love for family, for home, for a spouse, a child, a friend, a place, a time. Imagining the fruits of enduring for the sake of that love gave these sufferers an intangible power of will that quite literally affected their biology. They were sick less often or for not as long, able to survive on less food, better able to connect with each other. Love and the endurance of love through the exercise of the imagination, this was an antidote to pain. It was a foundation of hope. Frankel writes this, I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understand how a man who has nothing left in this world may still know bliss, be it only for a brief moment in the contemplation of his beloved. Imagination can go both ways. It can be frivolous or it can be reality shaping. Frankel's exploration of immersive imagination guided by love was the latter. This is a lesson that pairs well with the vision of Isaiah 61 and the lighting of the love candle this morning. So today we light the candle for love and we meditate on Isaiah 61, awaiting with joy the coming of the Son because the Father so loved the world and he has promised to restore it. We rest in the knowledge that we ha only have control over how much we buy into this vision of restoration, not whether or not it happens, because it will. We light the candle for love and we consider the love that Jesus embodied when he publicly took on the mantle of Messiah in Luke 4. And he quoted Isaiah 61 and declared, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We light the candle for love and we behold the love in this act. In a departure from the original text, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, but he leaves out the second half of verse two, the responsibility given to the anointed one to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. He does not take it on himself to proclaim vengeance against us because he took on that vengeance for us. 
Jesus removes the judgment of exile, the suffering of the loneliness of exile from us because he bore it himself on the cross. And in this way, he restores the broken relationship and restores us to true communion with our creator. So today, we light the candle of love, the last candle of Advent, and we contemplate the love of our God revealed in the prophecies of Isaiah and the birth of our King. <laughs>